Well, good morning, friends. I want to uh, welcome you here. And if you are in the foyer, I want to invite you to grab your beverage and come on back in and take a seat. And we'll continue with our time together uh, this morning. My name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And uh, if you're new or visiting with us, we want to extend our warmest welcome to you. And we are uh, going to jump right in. <clears throat> well, a couple of uh, years ago, I was out at uh, the water slides with my family. We went out to the ones at Bridal Falls. They're like the tamest water slides, the gentle water slides. Uh, they're not the kind of crazy corkscrew ones or anything like that. Because my kids were a lot younger when we did this. So we wanted to keep it nice and gentle. And it wasn't really busy at the water park that day. So we got lots of times going up and down, up and down, running down, getting down the slide, run up the hill, go down again. And things were going along just really fantastic. We were having a great day at the water park until the moment when I heard that sound that you don't want to hear and it caused a little bit of panic in my heart. And what had happened was I heard the sound of my wedding ring slipping off of my finger and rolling and bouncing ahead of me down the slide. And so I realized this, and I tried everything I could to try and speed up. I, I went on my back and put my arms like this, and that didn't really help very much. So I sat back up, and I started pushing on the sides of the slide to try and get faster and faster. But the slides are really, really gentle there. And the ring was just rolling. It was gone. It was way out ahead of me. And so I could start, as I headed down the slide, to feel this kind of wave of panic going over me. And... So when I got to the bottom, I, uh, I immediately stood up and then I started kind of fishing around at the bottom of the slides to figure out what was going on and if I could feel my wedding ring anywhere. And what I forgot about is, of course, all the slides come out at the same spot, right? In the pool. So suddenly I'm getting like kicked in the face by people coming down the other slides. And I've got this lifeguard who's coming and trying to get me out of there and saying, hey, you can't be in there. Come on. And I'm trying to explain to him, no, no, it's just it's fine. It's just my wedding ring. I'll find it here at the bottom. And, um, you know, this 17-year-old kid, you give a 17-year-old kid a whistle and a uniform, a little, they think they have limitless power over you. And so they're dragging me out there saying, no, you got to get out. This is unsafe. These people are coming down. So finally, I communicate to them, you know, it's my wedding ring. It's really valuable to me. I, want, I really need to find this. Uh, and they say, fine, fine. We'll, we'll kind of clear the pool for a few minutes so you can get in there. So they clear the pool. I search around. They come in and help me. Nothing. It's gone. And so I said, well, what, what do you do in situations like this? And they said, I don't know. Go talk to the manager. <laughs> So I went into the office and talked to the manager and explained my whole situation, how the ring had come off and it was lost and we cleared the pool. We'd all searched diligently for it. We couldn't find it. And he said, oh, that happens all the time. <laughs> he said, 99% chance we'll find it. I'm like, but what about the 1% chance we won't find it? He says, no, no, it'll go down. It'll get caught in the filters. And then uh, tomorrow when we clean it out, I'm sure it'll be there. So I 
you need me to fill out paperwork? And no, 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 just call me. We'll be fine. So right at opening the next day, I'm on the phone. Did you find it? Did you find it? No, we didn't find it. Oh, I called a couple more times that day. Did you find it? Did you find it? I'm getting ready to get back in my car and drive out there, clear the pool again, give them a piece of my mind about this. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's no problem. We'll find it. And then I get a phone call saying, hey, we found your ring. It just dribbled over to the side, didn't get caught in the filter, but we were able to find it, come on out and uh, pick it up. And so I went out, I grabbed my ring, and there was much rejoicing that my ring had been found. But here's what I learned from that experience, other than to be more pay more attention when I go swimming or to the water slides about well, how my wedding ring is on my finger. I learned that the amount of effort that you are willing to put into the pursuit of something that is missing or lost is in direct proportion of the value that it has to you. So if it's low value to you, you're probably going to put in low effort if it's lost. High value, high effort. I mean, if a paperclip would have fallen out of my pocket, no big deal. But if my wedding ring is lost, that's a big deal. And I'm going to put more effort into trying to find that. And so it begs a question, some questions actually, that we're going to probe into a little bit this morning and as we go through a new series that we're starting this month. And some of those are questions like, who or what is valuable to God? And what or who does God consider lost or found? And what does God do in those situations? And what does God invite us to do. So hold some of those questions in your mind, and we're going to come back to them throughout this series. Well, today we're starting a new series uh, in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 15, and we're titling it The Pursuit, God's Steadfast Love. And the reason we're calling it The Pursuit is just like my wedding ring, when you lose something valuable to you, you pursue it. You go after it. You want to find it. And we see throughout the Bible, but particularly in the stories that Jesus tells in the Gospels, that God has a unique love for people who are lost. His steadfast, never-failing, never-ending, never-giving-up kind of love that moves God into those places where God pursues us. And so in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, Jesus tells three stories and in these three stories, there are four items that are lost. And today we're going to look at Luke chapter 15, uh, verses 1 to 7, which is a story about a, a lost sheep. And then next weekend, Pastor Wally's going to lead us through uh, a story that Jesus tells about a coin that's lost. And then uh, there's a story that might be familiar to you about a son that is lost. But in that story, there's actually two sons that are lost. One son leaves home and is lost, and one son stays at home but is still lost. And in each of these stories, we learn something about God's heart and something about God's love. And we also learn things about ourselves. So today we're going to begin with Jesus' parable about a lost sheep. So if you have your Bibles or you can turn on your devices to Luke chapter 15. And what's helpful for us to think about when we come 
to any passage in the Bible is to think about why was this written? Why is this recorded? Why did Jesus bother telling this story? What was the purpose of the story in Jesus' mind? And we do catch a clear glimpse of this in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. So I'm going to read that from the New Living Translation. It'll be up on the screens behind me. Luke chapter 15, verse 1, says that tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. But this made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people. He was even eating with them. So if we ask, who is this story for? Who are the intended listeners for this story? The first group of people is mentioned right away off the top for us. Uh, tax collectors and other notorious sinners is the first group of people. So tax collectors get their own special category for some reason. Uh, part of it probably has to do with the fact that when we think about taxes and income taxes, we generally, we're kind of generally displeased about it, but we don't actively hate the people that work for Revenue Canada. They're just doing their job. Some of you are like, mm, maybe you do. <laughs> but tax collectors get their own special kind of hate in uh, this period in time. You see, at this period of time, uh, the nation of Judah and the nation of Israel lived under Roman rule and occupation. And so tax collectors were the frontline participants in a kind of state-sponsored extortion scheme. See, one thing that Rome was really good at in its history was collecting income to fund all of the stuff that was necessary to fuel the empire. And so Rome was good at collecting money from the far-flung regions of the empire. So the way that they did this, they came up with a plan. Instead of sending their people out to everywhere uh, and having their people collect taxes, they hired local people to collect taxes. And so if you were a local person, you could place a bid on your little region and say, I wonder, you know, uh, they'd put a bid out and say, who wants to collect taxes for uh, the city of Langley? And then you would bid on that, on that particular contract. And uh, they were ingenious because Rome said to these people that had the winning bids, listen, this is what we need you to collect. But anything you collect above and beyond that, you get to keep. So, what do you think happened? Because Rome gave them the liberty to collect whatever they want, and Rome said, oh, by the way, you have the full force of the Roman army at your disposal to collect and enforce whatever taxation rate you choose above the minimum. So tax collectors are business people. They did what I would have done in that situation. If you've got a monopoly and you've got the army to back you up, that's just good business. You've got an opportunity there. So let's say you had to collect like $100 per citizen per month. And you think to yourself, I think we could collect more. That would be a good thing for me. I would get rich off of this. So you show up with a Roman soldier in hand, and you say what they say whenever our team goes to Guatemala. In Guatemala, they'll quote you a price, and then when you actually show up, they'll say, oh, the price has been refreshed is their language. And so 
You show up to collect your taxes, and the person thinks it's, ah, it's probably going to be 100 bucks, and you say, oh, the price has been refreshed this month. It's 150 Next month, maybe it's 200 Whatever you think that you can squeeze out of your fellow citizens, because you can do this with total impunity. There's no one to complain to above you. You just get to set whatever rate you think you want. As long as Rome keeps getting the money that it wants, then you get to do whatever you want. So it's no wonder that people hated tax collectors. They were just flat-out extortionists. And they were traitors to their own friends and country members. They oppressed and squeezed people for money till there was nothing left. And yet, we see in this verse that for some reason, these people were inextricably drawn to Jesus. They were irresistibly drawn to be with Jesus and to hear what Jesus had to say. The other category that Luke uses here is a a broad term that he just calls notorious sinners. In other words, if you're going to fall in this category, you had to break God's laws in such a public way that other people would, it would be really well known to them. So for most of these people, it likely had to do something with their occupation, that they, what did they did for a living to make money for them and for their family in order to, uh, and then people would look at that and say, well, they, you can't do that and say that you're following God in some way. So maybe the most famous category here uh, would be those who worked in prostitution and who worked in sex trade and sex trafficking. It was pretty clear to people around them that, oh yeah, they probably were not going to be welcome at temple worship. Another example would be if somebody was a farmer, but they were a pig farmer. Because uh, in the Old Testament, God forbid the Jews to engage in and consume pork. And so if you were a pig farmer, it immediately meant that was incompatible. You were unclean. You, you were kind of dirty. You didn't, we didn't want to associate with you or with any of your kind of people. And so these were the types of people that were notorious or public sinners. But yet again, these people drew near to Jesus. They they felt a sense of welcome around Jesus. They often came, it says not just once, but they often came to hear Jesus teach. And Jesus created always a generous and gracious space for them to come and engage with him. These are people who, for everybody else in their culture, they're on the outside. They're like, ooh, you don't talk to those people. Don't hang out with those people. Don't let your kids hang out with those people. And yet Jesus always, always welcomed them. People have expressions like, well, you're known by the company that you keep. And if so, Jesus was actively keeping company with some pretty doubtful people. And so the religious leaders see this, and they begin to complain. The Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law. And they're concerned because Jesus is supposed to be a good religious person. 
and Jesus is now eating with. He's breaking bread with people who are unclean. And they're thinking to themselves, this Jesus, people say he's a prophet. How could he be a prophet? Prophets are like professionally religious people, and he's associating with those types of people? I mean, if he had any revelation from God, if he knew anything, he would know not to hang out with them. And so they reasoned that because Jesus knew that these people were sinners, that if Jesus was a good religious person, he was not one to be associated with those types of people. And they felt that Jesus was guilty by association. So they did what good religious people do. They began to grumble and complain. And it's important to note that this story about the lost sheep is actually a response to their complaining. The story is both for the tax collectors and the notorious sinners to help them understand something about God, but it is also for the religious people, those already in the fold, to help them understand. And what Jesus does to them is he challenges their boundary keeping and he calls out their complaining and their jealousy and says that is not the heart of God. See, the religious leaders, they wanted to have big crowds, but they didn't want to have any sinners present. They wanted to be seen as respectable, but they didn't want to give any respect to other people. And so Jesus often in his ministry gets into conflict with that kind of attitude. But there's another group of people that this story is directed at, and it's why it's written down, and that is it's for you and me. As readers, Luke writes this story down with a view of asking us to explore our own lives and ask us, do we identify with either of those groups? What group do you most readily identify with? When you walked in this morning, what were you thinking and feeling? Some people come into a place like a church, and doesn't matter how many times they've been there, a voice in the back of their heads is saying to them, you don't belong here. Oh, you think you're just gonna walk in here? If these people around you, sitting around you, if they knew the stuff that you have done in your life, if they knew your past, they would not welcome you here. If they knew the things that you struggle with, the areas that tripped you up even this week. Do you ever feel like that when you walk through the doors or you go to a small group or you sit in something and you think, I don't belong. These other people, they seem to have it together. If they knew how much condemnation I live with in my life, they wouldn't welcome me. Other people, when they go through the doors of a place like this, they might feel very comfortable I might have thoughts and opinions about all kinds of things related to how we should do stuff around here. Are you sure you should be getting into a partnership with a school that's not a Christian school? What if a, what if a non-binary kid shows up at youth group? I mean, what if, what if we do a nice rental in the building and it starts getting wrecked by these kids running around the halls all the time during a quiet moment in worship? 
When we read the rest of this story, hold your perceptions and status in your mind of insiders and outsiders. Let's keep reading in Luke chapter 15, verses 3 to verse 7. So in response to this, Jesus tells them this story. If a shepherd, if a man has a hundred sheep, one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't the shepherd leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go and search for the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives back at home, he's going to call together all of his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. And then Jesus finishes the story and says, here's the point, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and who haven't strayed away. As with a lot of Jesus' parables, they're pretty short. They're pretty simple. We get to the point really quickly. There's only a few characters in this one. We've got the shepherd, we've got sheep, and we've got neighbors. And then Jesus draws that out and says, here's what I want you to understand about your life and about the world as a result of this. Here's what I want you to know and understand about God's heart. So we're going to explore a few of those characters together. The first character in this story is the character of the shepherd. What do we learn about or what do we see about the shepherd? How would you describe, just shout out some words, how would you describe the shepherd in this story? Caring, what else? Protecting, Protecting what else? Loving, what else? Notices, he notices sheep, yeah, what else? Faithful, what else? Determined. Determined. Yeah, he's going to go till he finds it. Yeah, what else? Brave. Brave. Yeah, there's risk involved. Absolutely. What else? Trusting. Yeah. There's a lot that we see about the shepherd just in this story. One of the things we, we uh, can infer is this shepherd owns 100 sheep. And in that day and age, that would be a fairly wealthy individual. If you own one sheep, you know, that's kind of just for your family or a couple of sheep. But if you were going to go into the business as a shepherd, you probably had somewhere between 20 and 200 sheep under your care and your charge. So this is a pretty decent-sized flock. This person therefore has enough disposable income that if one sheep goes missing, the shepherd would have had the option to say to themselves, you know what, I still have 99. It's not a big deal. There'll be more lambs or ewes next year, won't there? That's okay. Let's just forget about that one. It's just the cost of doing business. There's still 99 left, right? But Jesus asks a question for those who are listening to him. He says to the people who are listening, what should the shepherd do? 
about this lost sheep? And the answer is self-evident. The shepherd is a business person. The shepherd is a savvy business person. They're going to act in a way that advances their interest. They're going to leave the 99. They're going to go find this lost sheep. This is a shepherd, though, not just with a business mind, but with a compassionate heart. And we're not told from the text whether the shepherd leaves them with anyone. They're left out in the wilderness, so probably. But we do know that they're not left inside of a nice, tidy sheep pen. They're out in the wilderness. So the shepherd doesn't sort of say, well, we'll just leave that one. Let's get everybody else to safety. And then if I have some time, I might think about going out after my latte and getting the, the one that's lost. This shepherd's like, we're in the wilderness. I'm not afraid to take some risks here. And I'm going to go after and search for this lost sheep. I think about this every time I hear on the news or see on the news about search and rescue teams. You know, I think about hikers that go out into the backcountry and are not prepared and they get stuck on the North Shore mountains. And it's their own fault. They were not prepared. And they call for help. And then all across the North Shore and in other places, people get up out of their nice, warm, cozy beds. These are volunteers, remember. They rush down to the command center. They get the equipment that's necessary and they go back out into the backcountry, sometimes at great risk and cost to their own lives, searching and searching and searching for that which is lost. And that's what Jesus wants us to hear in this story. Because Jesus, in other places, like the Gospel of John, chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus identifies himself as the shepherd. In John 10, 14, Jesus says, I am like a good shepherd. I know my sheep, and they know me. Jesus is saying that a good shepherd always, always pursues missing and lost sheep. A good shepherd never says, ah, it's all right, we got 99, let's just leave it, we're good. This parable actually comes to us from the language of the Old Testament that God used to describe his pursuit of people in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 34, there's a whole section about God saying, I'm like a good shepherd. I'm always seeking. I'm always initiating. I'm always actively pursuing the ones that are lost. Ezekiel 34, 11, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search and find my sheep. I'm not going to send somebody else. I'm going to go myself. I will be like a shepherd looking for his scattered flock. I will find my sheep. I will rescue them from all of the places where they were scattered on that dark and cloudy day. I myself will tend to my sheep. I will give them a place to lie down in peace, says the sovereign Lord. I'll search for the lost ones who strayed away. I will bring them safely home again. I'll bandage the injured up and I will strengthen the weak. This is an image that comes to us again and again. Comes to us in Psalm 23. The picture of the good shepherd. Because of God's love for us. For you. 
for all people. God is always, always seeking. He's always pursuing ones that are lost. And this is in direct contradiction to the rabbinical teaching that the religious leaders had in their day. They said things like, well, yes, God welcomes the repentant, but you have to come groveling back to God with a whole bunch of self-flagellation in order to prove to God how sorry you are for how lost you have become. And friends, this isn't to minimize the biblical call for repentance, so don't hear what I'm not saying. But Jesus says to these people and to the religious leaders, God's love is such that God is actively, relentlessly pursuing. The shepherd is going out into the night, seeking, searching, making sure the sheep is found and returned. The shepherd is not sitting at home saying, well, when that sheep realizes how bad things are out there in the world, that sheep is going to be so sorry that it left. It's going to say to itself, I should come home to the shepherd. It's going to clean itself up and get its act together. And then we're going to welcome that sheep back into the fold. Jesus, in all four of these stories, is so clear that God's active embrace, repeated again and again, compels God to search and to seek for those that are lost those that do not have their act together, those that are not even actively interested in God, those who have turned their backs and walked away, the shepherd is still seeking. So that's what we see about the shepherd. What do we learn about sheep? Well, we learn that we're supposed to put ourselves into the category of sheep in this story. And we're supposed to understand that all of the sheep are valuable to the shepherd. Sometimes when you think about God, you might think, I don't know, God's like big and out there and like well, songs about God being glorious and holy and all of those things. How could God care about me? Like aren't there bigger problems in the world for God to care about? This story and others help refocus our thinking and challenge that to understand that God knows your name. God knows your story. God knows everything about you. God knows your weaknesses. God knows the areas where you've tripped up, the places you like to hide out and hang out when you think nobody's looking at you, God knows your relapses, and yet even when you willfully stray, the shepherd loves you. The shepherd still sees value in you, even if you can't see it in yourself. And it's not a token search that the shepherd mounts. It's not like, well, I'll give it three minutes, and if I can't find the sheep, then eh, it's probably gone. Remember the amount of effort 
you are willing to put into the pursuit of something is directly proportionate to its value to you. And in this story and throughout the scriptures, we are to understand that lost people matter to God. The shepherd is going to search for the one who's lost until he finds him. God's love continuously compels God to seek and to search and to find. This is not because God is somehow overriding your will. It's simply an expression of how valuable you are as an individual to God, that God loves you. Not just that God so loved the world as a big category, God loved you. All sheep, including lost ones, are loved and valued by the shepherd. But the real question becomes, for Jesus in this story, are all sheep loved and valued by us? Because this is where a parable takes the turn away from the shepherd and the sheep and invites us to consider how we feel about lostness. What do we learn about ourselves in this text? Well, one thing that Jesus is inviting each of his hearers to remember is that moment or period of lostness in our own lives. See, each of us at one time in our lives was lost and was in need of pursuit. One of the most famous paintings in history ever done on this parable comes from the mid-1800s. And in it, I'm fascinated by the fact that the artist chose not to actually focus a lot on the shepherd. We don't see the shepherd's face in this picture. The artist chose to focus on the sheep and how that sheep is in such a precarious position. There's predators circling. One wrong move on those cliffs and that sheep falls. It's dangerous to be a lost sheep. And there's a helplessness that the artist wants to remind us about. And that's because at some point in each of our lives, we've been there or whether we acknowledge it or not, or we are there. The beautiful and powerful truth of the scripture is that yes, there was a time when you and I were utterly helpless by according to Romans 5, verse 6. But when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and he died for us as sinners. See, all of us were at one point or another in need of pursuit and Jesus came and Jesus found us and Jesus offered us God's gracious rescue. But this is perhaps one of the most challenging parts of the story because once you're off the cliff, if you're a sheep, and you're back safely in the sheepfold, and some time elapses, and you don't feel endangered very much anymore, that whole cliff thing and the lostness begins to feel like a distant memory. We can even begin to sanitize our story and tell ourselves, you know, I was in pretty good shape. I mean, yeah, God added a little bit to my life, 
maybe a slightly better person, maybe a little bit of morality in there. But I mean, frankly, God should be really grateful that he has a model sheep like me, part of his flock. Friends, it's very, very easy to lose touch with our lostness. And this is especially true if you grew up around a church and it was part of your very young and early memories. And if you've been around for a long time, because then a moment or a process of God bringing you to salvation is a long, long time ago. And the further in time we move away from that place, the easier it is to forget about it and begin to think and act a little bit more like a Pharisee and a little bit less like a tax collector. So how in touch are you and I with our own lostness? I mean, it's very easy to tell ourselves, I'm basically a good person. Sure, I may have a little oopsie here and there, but you know, if I compare myself to others, I'm pretty good. The scripture teaches that you and I were not just a little bit separated from the shepherd, we were spiritually speaking utterly helpless. Incapable of getting off that cliff on our own, but the shepherd came to our rescue. While we were still far in our lostness and in our sin, Jesus came. And here's the thing that Jesus reiterates three times in this short story. See, when we lose touch with our lostness, the other thing we lose touch with is God's joy. Look at the joy that the shepherd exhibits. When he finds the sheep, he's joyful. And he joyfully carries the sheep home. When he gets home, he's joyful. He invites others around him to celebrate. This joy is communal not just individual. Lost sheep finding is like a team sport to this shepherd, not just something that individuals do. God wants us to share in God's heart, heart that's filled with compassion for people who are lost. And when people who are lost turn back and return to God, Jesus pulls back the curtain and says, we don't know a ton of things about heaven, but I do know this, that all of heaven shares in God's joy when lost people get found. It is a flat-out party. And Jesus explains the point of the parable in verse 7 and says, the point is there is so much joy in heaven when a lost sinner repents. Not just like a first time repentance, but there is so much joy in heaven when you take a step away from God and when you chose to sin this week and God in his grace says, I'm, I'm, I'm here for you. I want to be back in right relationship with you and you take an active step and turn back into a relationship with God. There is joy in heaven over the 99 others who think that they're so self-righteous that they've not strayed away. And so the question for us to reflect on is how in touch are we with our own lostness? Maybe today you're here 
And you have come to a place where you say, you know what, I actually recognize that, Brad. I recognize that I am lost and that I am in need of spiritual rescue. And maybe your desire is to receive for the first time or maybe yet again the gracious love and forgiveness of a good God. And maybe today is your day that you'll be found by the one who is seeking you. And God has been seeking you the whole of your life. All of the circumstances that you just thought were coincidental could very well be the good shepherd in his gracious pursuit of you in love. And if that's you today, you can respond to God's love as expressed through Jesus by saying, God, I recognize my lostness. I recognize I cannot get off that cliff on my own. I want to be found by you. I want to follow after you. God, save me. Lead me. Guide me. Gentle, wise, and good shepherd. And if that's you, and you're in that place today, then we want to join in the celestial celebration that God is throwing for you. Because if that's the desire of your heart in the heavenly realms, joy just broke out in the presence of God and his angels. How in touch are you with your own lostness? And the second question is a related one, and that is how in touch are we with the lostness of those around us? And this is a bit of a harder question to reflect on because if we're honest, most of us, we can, we can give a little bit of thought to our own interior world or to our own spiritual condition, but it's tougher to do that for people around us. Because sure, they probably look okay, on the outside, but if you were to get in behind the mask and the veneer of their life, you might find incredible pain and loneliness and lostness. But it can become very easy to just go through our lives and just coast through our weeks, come to church on Sunday, hang out with a bunch of other friends from church, totally miss people that God has put in our pathway who are in need of rescue. Maybe for you today, you have lost the eyes to see those around you who are lost. Maybe your heart of compassion for people who are lost is growing faint. Jesus tells this story to remind us that there are sheep that do not yet have a shepherd. And some of them are hurting and wounded and dangling on the edge of a cliff and yet you walk past them every day at work at school or in the hallways, and you don't see it. And so Jesus invites us to share his heart. Jesus invites us to move from being sheep to actually playing the part of under-shepherds in this story, to being the ones who seek, the ones who search, the ones who extend that hand of rescue. And maybe today you want to pray and make a commitment and say, God, I need you to, in a fresh way, open my eyes to see the people around me. I want to pray for them. I want to see their life and their world as you see it. I've taken to walking from my house to Jericho one day a week. And on my way, the reason I do it is I want to try and make it a spiritual exercise that as I walk past homes, as I meet people on the trail, I, I want to engage with them and I want to pray for them and ask God to help me see them and their lives in the way that he 
sees them. And as I've done this over the past couple of weeks, I've been reminded again that there are literally tens of thousands of people in our immediate neighborhood who are lost. And I'm asking God, God, every day, every week, would you open my heart up more and more? God, would you give our church a heart more and more and more for people who are lost? Then we can respond in love to those who come into our lives. And maybe for you today, that's your action of response. Maybe, uh, as Jared reminded us, that when we lose touch with God's love for us, then we also can lose touch with God's love for other people. And so maybe for you today, you want to come face to face again with the radical and the overwhelming nature of God's love for you. Some of you are okay with God rescuing other people, but if you think about God rescuing you, that makes you uncomfortable. But in this story, remember, we're all sheep and we are all uniquely and individually loved and sought by the good shepherd. And in the communion table, we're reminded that the good shepherd didn't just say, I love you. The good shepherd put those words into action. And the scripture says, greater love has no one than this, that a person would be willing to lay down their life for their friends. And Jesus did that for us. Jesus did that for you. And so as Jared and the team come and lead us in three songs of worship in response, sometimes the communion table has this feeling of being very solemn and we should all be very quiet to it. What I want for us to try and engage and participate in today is that this would be a place of gratitude and a place of celebration, a place of joy. Because when you take the bread, which represents Christ's body, say to yourself something like, God, I receive this with gratitude in my heart. You have done so much for me. I want to again be reminded of your love. And when you take the cup, which represents Christ's blood shed willingly for you, say, thank you, Jesus, for your great love for me. I receive it by faith. Because we don't come to this table because we're worthy. We come only because of the overwhelming, never-ending love of God, the God who pursues and persists and who rejoices with us when we're found. Let's pray together. God, I'm so grateful for your love and for your heart, your compassion, your mercy. And I confess that so many times in my life, I just lose touch with that. Get busy, get distracted. Thank you for your consistent, gentle, winsome reminders to call me and us back to you. Thank you for your invitation. You say all who are thirsty can come and drink. All who need to find life, a rich and abundant life that starts now and goes on for all of eternity with God can come to you and find it. And so Jesus, we come. We come in obedience, we come with gratitude, we come just as we are, 
we come in repentance for those areas of our lives that are not in alignment with you and with your invitation and your love. And we receive again your gracious, loving forgiveness. So we come in the name of the Father who sent the Son and who sends the Spirit into our hearts and into the world to convict the world of sin, to bring redemption and restoration and healing to those places in our lives that are lost. We come with our hearts filled with gratitude. We come to this table expressing our need for you and our, our need to again recapture your heart and recapture a sense of your love for us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. I invite you to, as you're ready, stand with us in worship. Our practice here at Jericho is that this is an open table, and so we don't police it. We invite you when you're ready to come and receive. Uh, Wally and Sylvia are serving at this table. Ken and Julie are serving at the far side. We have a gluten-free option for you as well. You can partake there, or you can take it back to your seat. We also invite you, if you'd like us to pray for or with you, we would be privileged to do that. Constance and Curtis and Gary and Betty will be available at the back. You'll see that they have name tags to identify them. Let's worship and respond to God's love together.